Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. What we stopped doing almost entirely was having dreadful gala black tie dinners where people felt obliged to pay 200 bucks for a ticket to getting people to write venture capital proposals for exciting things that we could do with them. And, and so the entrepreneurial analogy is a very exact one. You might not think that a university vice-chancellor would normally fit the profile of an entrepreneur or a business innovator to be included in Build It, Thou Come podcast. But in the case of Dr. Michael Spence, AC, the vice-chancellor of the University of Sydney, you'd be wrong. Because like most large Australian universities, the University of Sydney, or UCID as it's known, is like a large business, selling, let's call it a higher education product. And the CEO of that business, that is Vice-Chancellor Michael Spence, manages that business, motivating a workforce of 10,000 staff with an active customer base, we'll call them, of 73,000 students. And then over the past 10 years, Dr. Spence instigated and built something extraordinary, a fundraising campaign for the university called Inspired. But what unfolded in that campaign was not only an amazing achievement, busting a few myths about gift giving along the way, but the end result in dollars raised far exceeded the lofty target they started with. Oh, and did I mention Michael Spence is really an academic? a doctor of philosophy, an Anglican minister, and he speaks four languages. Not really a business guy at all. Or is he? Dr. Michael Spence, AC, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. It's a pleasure. Now, Normally on this podcast, I speak to visionary entrepreneurs about the journey of how they backed themselves and turned a humble but fabulous idea into a massive business or movement. Now, in many ways, I think you actually perfectly fit that theme. But in another way, I'm not sure that you would consider yourself a business entrepreneur. No, it's certainly hard to think of the University of Sydney as a humble but brilliant <laughs> idea. It is a brilliant place. But I think one of the challenges on arriving at the University of Sydney was that it was an institution that clearly had an enormous amount of potential and in some ways needed a lot of change, but also had a very strong sense of its own place in the world. And you know, one of the challenges of leading the University of Sydney is that 5 million people in the city love the institution to bits and 3 million are sure that they can run it better than the people who are employed to do it. So, Of course. Like a great business idea, it had an enormous amount of potential, but unlike a normal entrepreneurial situation, it was a place very confident about itself. Yeah, exactly. Now, in fact, you are a linguist. You speak four languages, I think, at last count. You're a legal expert in intellectual property theory. You're a theologian. You're a doctor of philosophy and an academic. But you are also a businessman running this organisation that really is, it's a massive business. It's a small city really there in the middle of Sydney. How did you come to decide that the university really needed modernisation or is in fact that's what you were hired for? So in some senses, that's what I was hired for. And I think it's an interesting role leading an institution because in some ways you write your CEO of a $2.8 billion turnover business. In other ways, you're chief worker in a workers' collective because that's very much what an academic community is. In some ways, you're the mayor of a small town and we have 10 locations across New South Wales. But the university in 2008 was not in any meaningful sense a university. It was 16 universities in the 16 faculties of the university, more or less constantly at war with one another. And that was really impacting its both its financial and its academic performance. And so the challenge was to remind people how exciting it is to be in a place where all the disciplines are really well represented and both what you can do if you operate as a university and in particular, what you can do in multidisciplinary research and teaching to address some of the issues that our community are facing. 
How did you make that? I do want to go back to this later in the interview, but how did you at first make that transition from, I guess, really a pure academic, weren't you, to then a business leader and jumping into very senior management? Well, so in in the same sort of way that you know people in all sorts of industries make that transition. So yes, I was an academic, but also over my 20 years at Oxford had experience of academic administration, everything from I think one of my first jobs as a junior academic was to oversee the food in my college's hall. And let me tell you, that's a job of enormous contention and um, I'm sure and it something is. that uh, requires the wisdom of Solomon in a way that you wouldn't imagine, all the way through to by the time I left Oxford, I was responsible for running a quarter of the university. And, and, and so it was a big step to Sydney, but one that I really enjoyed. Now, how have you been managing during the COVID crisis? I do want to ask you a little bit about this because your university and, of course, the whole tertiary sector, indeed all of education, has really been hit for six, not only by having to protect the health of staff and students by swivelling to online learning, etc., but how has that gone? You've, you've also had this enormous problem of international students the fair running of exams while everything's online and people are remote. How have you been managing during this crisis? So there have been two challenges, as you say. One is simply organising for the education and work life of 73,000 students and 10,000 staff, making sure that everybody was safe, that we had business continuity, that we were able to swivel very quickly from teaching face-to-face to teaching online. And that's a job of both tremendous detail and also important strategy. And I was really proud of the way that people across the university mucked in to really bring the changes very quickly that were necessary in order for us to be operating effectively in an online environment. And in fact, believe it or not, our student satisfaction scores for first semester were the best that we've ever had. Our students really responded to the way in which the university organised for their education to go online. The other was, of course, the major financial challenge that was presented by the closure of the borders for us. In 1990, the government accounted for 90% of our revenue. But now the government accounts for just under 30% of our revenue. And most of the difference is made up in student fees and in particular international student fees. About 44% of our students come from overseas. They come from 140 countries. And so when the borders close and students can't, can't come to the university, that's obviously a significant problem. What's been even more challenging in a sense is that the, the situation is changing all the time. So at the beginning, only some students were prepared to stay in their home country and start their degree online. It seems in second semester as if many more students are prepared to stay in their home country and either continue or begin their course online. And so the situation is a constantly evolving one. And we are learning all the time how best to service the needs of offshore students. But, I mean, no doubt there has been a big hole of international students, particularly Chinese students, not coming anymore. So how badly, can you give us an idea of how badly have enrolments and the international student fees for this year been hit? So our original estimates were that of a $2.8 billion budget, we'd have a $470 million hole this year. It looks actually with our second semester enrolment figures as if things might not be as bad as we had originally thought. Because as I say, one of the interesting things is that at the beginning when everybody thought, oh, you know, this is going to be over in six months, people thought, well, I'll stay at home Mm. in Delhi or Shanghai and just wait and go to Australia when it's all over. I think people are now saying, well, I'm not sure how long it's going to take, so I may as well get on with the degree and begin online. And so we are seeing better numbers for second semester than we had anticipated. What sort of percentage reduction have you had? So we won't know until sometime early next month when census date comes because you can withdraw up until census date and Believe it or not, students make very last-minute decisions about 
whether or not they're going to complete their studies. So this at this point, it's a bit unclear, but the signs are looking good. Yes. So you said 44% of your students now come from overseas, which is, you know, that's a massive percentage and that would be replicated, I'm sure, by probably most of the other big universities in certainly Sydney and Melbourne. But what percentage of your fee revenue comes from foreign students? Because that I imagine is higher because they pay a lot higher fees than local students. It is much higher. So it's about $1.2 billion of international student fees and about $800 million of domestic student fees. Wow, that's a huge amount. So uh, you really can't do without that international student fee revenue. No, you can't. And look, it's a remarkable contribution that the institution makes to our community. Love. We had Asil Allen do some work on the economic contribution of the university in 2019. And we supported 36,000 jobs outside the university itself. So jobs in accommodation, jobs in tourism, jobs in hospitality, jobs in services. When students come, they their families come on holidays, you know, they spend money in our mm. shops. It's a great export earner for Australia. But more importantly than that, we have this tremendous opportunity to educate the world and to really build, I think, you know, what the diplomats like to call soft power for mm. Australia in our region and beyond as people come to understand the Australian way of life and Australian political and social values. Yeah. And just to be clear for our listeners and myself, that international student fee income and local student fee income, that adds up to $2 billion. Are you saying that 30% on top of that comes from the government now to take it up to almost $3 billion? That's right. Right. Now, it is interesting that you've had to deal with this, and, and we'll talk about some of the issues around international students a little bit later. Do you feel that next year is going to be any brighter? Can you see how this plays out, or really nobody can? So next year is tricky for us because We've been able to deal with this year's $470 million hole mostly through non-salary cutbacks and we've been very keen not to really do anything on the salary line and that's partly be, been because, you know, if you have a brilliant astrophysicist, you don't want to lay them off in July and re-employ them next January because you have students and the income to support their research. But next year, if there's not an international student corridor or borders are not open or there's a softening of the international student market, that's really problematic for us. And so at the moment, we're in the process of planning for what we would do in such a context. And that's requiring some really interesting strategic thinking across the institution. One thing we know is that it's not going to be just business as usual next year, but the precise nature of the scenario that we're facing Obviously, we are preparing for all sorts of different financial shocks. Mm. But are you having to cut costs right now? Yes, we are. And does that mean staff or jobs had to go? Mostly that's been deferring capital expenditure, you know, cutting all travel and entertainment, not hiring as many casual staff and, and consultants in the context in which we would normally do that, those sorts of things. Michael Spence, there has been criticism and from members of the federal government that seem to almost blame the universities, and I include most of them in this, for their loss of income, for being too reliant on Chinese foreign students. How do you mm -hmm. answer that criticism? Um, look, uh, over the last 40 years, both the cost of research and the cost of education has become more expensive. So, uh, you know, 40 years ago, you gave lectures and you set exams, and that was about what students expected. Now, of course, they expect a rich student life. They expect the university to have all the latest technology. They expect career services and counselling mm. services and support services of all sorts. So student expectations and therefore costs have risen. Similarly, research has become much more expensive as the cost of the kind of sophisticated equipment that we now need has grown. 
and as there is competition for the very best research talent globally. And Australia is incredibly lucky to have, depending upon how you count, six or seven universities in the top 100 in the world, that is in the top 1% of universities in the, in the major universities in the world. That's a phenomenal achievement for a country our size. And it's been a story where success has built upon success. So the success of the institutions has made them attractive to institutions from around the world. And we've been able to bring students from around the world, both to benefit from an Australian education, but also to contribute to the richness of our campus life and to whatever. Mm. Now, we could have universities that were just kind of like, you know, the money the government gives us for domestic teaching sort of washes its face. So we could have universities that didn't do any research and that were sort of glorified high schools yeah. on the money that the government gives us. And we'd have no universities ranked in the top 100 and we wouldn't be creating jobs for Australians both inside and outside the university and we wouldn't be contributing to Australia's global presence. And that would be possible, but it seems kind of dumb to me. And more or less, the criticism is like saying to Qantas, well, why are you so dependent upon international travellers or to the tourism industry or to the miners? Why do you sell whatever it is, 85% of iron ore to China? Shouldn't you just be selling your iron ore to people from South Australia? Well, it's just not the way that the Australian economy works. Yeah, you're actually pointing out that there's an enormous double standard there. But would you also say that if the federal government, if taxpayers, was to fund or give more than 30% revenue to universities, then you wouldn't have to go to this so-called reliance on international students? So, look, any business would like the public purse to guarantee its revenue. Mm. It doesn't necessarily lead to the most creative and dynamic business activity, but nevertheless, that's so we're not going to say no to more money from the government. But it's not just money that international students bring. It gives incredible diversity to our campus. It gives the opportunity for our students to make friends from around the world. It creates networks for the institution in different countries of students who go on to be successful in both the commercial and uh, commercial sector and public life. We're better universities because we have a strong international student presence. Mm. I mean, having said all that, which is, you know, very strong rebuttal to that argument, are you actively trying to pursue perhaps other large foreign markets to attract them here as students so that perhaps you're not too reliant on China? Because then we've also been caught up with this, you know, the Chinese government kind of retaliating at a political level by urging students not to come to Australia. Yes. So, Yes, international student diversification is really important. And you know, as I say, our students come from 140 countries, though about half of our international students come from the PRC. That's not surprising because China sends about a million students overseas a year. The next country is India that sends about 300,000. The next country after that is Germany, which sends about 108,000 and South Korea that sends about 104,000, the United States that sends about 89,000. So our biggest countries as an institution are China and then the United States. There are also different kinds of markets. So Chinese families believe in education and invest heavily in education. The Indian market is very price elastic and very, very price sensitive. And so if it meaning if it's too expensive, they won't come. They won't come. And Indian families have traditionally had a very strong cultural prejudice for sending their children to the United States for medicine and science and to England for law and the humanities. And therefore we haven't traditionally recruited as well in India as we have in China, where there are less strong cultural prejudices. What is good is that that's all changing in India. Both Indian families are increasingly having the means to invest more in their children's education. 
Similarly, the Indian middle class is understanding the benefits of an Australian higher education and some of the traditional prejudices are breaking down. And so, yes, India is a really important diversification market, both for the sector and for us as an institution. But it's still the case that China sends three times more students abroad than any other country. And it is the giant country in our mm. region. We're in a similar time zone to your mum and dad if you're a student, and that has enormous attraction. There are strong cultural links between Sydney and Greater China. And so there's a, there's a logic to the Chinese connection. And given that China is also our major trading partner and a country with which Australia inevitably needs to deal strategically as the major power in our region, it makes a lot of sense for the universities to have a very strong both education and research connection with China. Mm. Michael Spence, how difficult has it been leading the University of Sydney through this COVID crisis with really no end date in sight? So it's an interesting question because in some senses, of course, it's been enormously difficult because of the tremendous uncertainty that there has been for the universities as there has been for the country as a whole. And having to think on a daily basis about everything from how many students you can fit in a room or whether or not you should have hand towels or, or blow dryers and to whom you should or should not issue masks at one level and negotiating with state transport authorities about how we get our students here next semester. And so those real issues of detail to far more existential issues about whether or not you're going to have enough money to pay the salary mm. in July 2020. That's been enormously challenging. But I have to say, at the same time, it's been very exciting to see my colleagues from across the university come together really effectively and in a very agile way to respond to the situation. So we had COVID first in China before we had it in Sydney because long before Sydney went into lockdown, the international border with China was closed and we needed to think mm. about how to service the educational needs of our Chinese students. Within two weeks, we had over a thousand units of study online, and not just online, but some really innovative thinking, having gone into how to make them effective online and how to support students at a distance. That's just phenomenal. And staff right across the university were really pulling their weight to make sure that that happened in a really effective way. It was great to see and fun to be a part of. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, particularly from an entrepreneurial point of view, the University of Sydney had a fundraising campaign called Inspired. Now, it was instigated by you back in 2008. Firstly, why was there a need for that? The university called it unprecedented. Why? So we had not had a campaign of this scale before. And of course, we went on to raise a billion dollars. And in raising a billion dollars, we sort of busted two myths. One is the notion that Australians don't give, and the other was the notion that they particularly don't give to higher education, and we demonstrated that that just wasn't true. In fact, of our 170-year history, it's only really a 30-year period in which the university has been primarily funded from public source, from government sources. And up until the Second World War, it was essentially philanthropy and public subscription and, and student fees, but, but philanthropy was enormously important that kept the university going. And so what we wanted to do in 2008 was recover that history. And philanthropy is great for an institution because, as I mentioned before, what we wanted to do was to stop just talking to one another in academic journals, but get out there in a multidisciplinary way and harvest the intellectual resources of the university to address the questions that the community were asking and not just the questions that academics were asking themselves. And so, so to do that in partnership with a whole lot of people who were not only intellectually supporters of the university's activity, but prepared to put their hands in their pockets to support it as well, gives a tremendous fillip to our researchers and teachers and has been a fabulous way of 
engaging the university with the community conversation. I mean, this was, in fact, a, a major entrepreneurial move, I would argue. It was a, a big gamble, really. The only difference is you personally weren't throwing in your own money, but you were asking others to back you and invest their money, which is precisely what entrepreneurs do. And it's it's a really interesting parallel because what I found at the university was that people weren't too keen on philanthropy in all sorts of ways. And fundraising never works unless in a university unless your academics and your academic leaders are really committed. And the mindset shift that people needed to have was from thinking of fundraising as begging for people to support what we want to do into making effectively venture capital proposals for helping people to achieve what they want to do and what we want to do with them. So, you know, there are people out there who want to cure Meniere's disease or who want to see cancer beaten whole, who want to see Aboriginal children and young people educated well, or who want the world to understand all about ancient Egypt or whatever it might be. And they have passions about which they know an enormous amount. We often have the skills to help them realize their vision for that particular area of activity. And to have a kind of intellectual and financial partnership in a particular area is really empowering both for our academic community and I hope also for our donors. And so the entrepreneurial analogy is right because what we stopped doing almost entirely was having dreadful gala black tie dinners where <laughs> people felt obliged to, you know, pay 200 bucks for a ticket uh. to getting people to write venture capital proposals for exciting things that we could do with them. And and so the entrepreneurial analogy is a very exact one. Yeah. So, in fact, you changed the mindset from the begging bowl to this is an investment from which there will be a return. Exactly. Yeah. This is an investment to which there will be a return about which in an area about which you are passionate. Yeah. But just before that sort of got to that stage, was the university – essentially forced into that need to fundraise on such a large scale because federal governments on behalf of taxpayers were pulling back from funding things like university research? Yes and no. So it's a bit like the international student question. So Harvard, Harvard has a $40 billion endowment. Mm. They don't have to do anything for financial reasons and yet a huge percentage of their students are international students because they know that to be an effective contemporary research university, you have to be drawing bright talent from around the world. Similarly, they don't have to fundraise for financial reasons. For Pete's sake, they have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. But they know that engaging with the community in philanthropy is good for their work because it creates those kind of partnerships that really keep the work of the university grounded in the interests of the community. And so But you didn't have that Harvard sort of endowment fund. No. So no, were you no, forced we to it? And so so the money is much more welcome to us on both the international student front and the philanthropy front than it is in Harvard. But, and we're probably a better investment on both scores. But what I'm saying is if we did have that money, it's not like we'd stop having international students or stop doing right. philanthropy. Yeah. So just I'm interested in how you actually built this campaign, how much work went into the planning of the inspired campaign, the mechanics and the design of it to try and ensure it would be a success. I mean, was it based on a template from elsewhere? Probably not Harvard, but, you know, Oxford or some other great university had done. So for some reason that no one can quite explain to you, Thinking of fundraising in campaign periods increases the effectiveness of your fundraising. And nobody can quite explain the social psychology of that, but it does seem clear. There's a, there's a pattern to university fundraising when you look at it. So we knew that we needed a campaign. And then the point was to put in place the machinery for doing that, the machinery for engaging with potential donors and the 
mindset and creating the mindset shift in the institution that we talked about from begging mm. to sort of venture capital raising. And putting in place that machinery is really important. And then at the beginning, there was just a huge amount of shoe leather, leather wearing out that the then director of development and I did just talking to people across the city and beyond about the work of the university. And one of the things that surprises people about our campaign is that 50% of our major donors, so people who give us over a million dollars, were not alumni, and 75% lived in postcodes not associated with high net wealth. So our major donors have not been the sort of BRW rich list or the household name families of Australia, though we have had some donations from some of those people. It's been people who inherited a second house and really want to see some disease beaten and who really believe in the power of university research and teaching. And that's been humble to see people, you know, uh, <laughs> if you give us more than a million bucks, you're obviously not poor, but yes. not the fact wealthy and um, people who've just found themselves having an asset of some sort and wanting to invest it in the university. Extraordinary, really. I mean, I was going to say, was the campaign sort of essentially in two parts where you go to your high net worth donors who already give to you and you ask them for more, as well as then asking alumni for much smaller amounts. And that could be, you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. So that, that is exactly right. And it is also true that in any university campaign, by far and away, the largest share of the eventual total comes from your major donors. And your major donors are inevitably people of relatively high net worth, but mm. they're not they're not just the usual suspects. No, extraordinary. So the initial goal was to raise $600 million, which was an enormous sum at that time. We've got to remember that's what 2008 you began. You had to get through the GFC when certainly people of high net worth and, and even most people were very nervous about their own finances. So that was an enormous goal at the time. It was an enormous goal and people kept telling us that we would not be able to achieve it and advising us that we needed various strategies for the narrative when we didn't achieve it. And so to reach the billion dollars within our campaign, within our planned campaign period was just really humbling. And I think But sorry, um, just because this is this is a great point, as I understand it, you actually reached the six hundred million dollar target much earlier than expected. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, we did. I mean, in this area, so it was our intuition. There's a kind of picture of Australia that says, look, Australians are pragmatic people who like a nice lifestyle and don't have much time for highfalutin university um, research and teaching. And in any case, don't give much because they want to spend what they've got on their second boat. And I just didn't believe it because everywhere I went, I met people who understood the importance of university research, who loved what the university did in training young people, and who really thought that the politicians in particular were missing the significance of the university sector. And mm. so... And I also believed that Australians were much more generous than they were being given credit for. So a lot of the comparative statistics on Australian giving with, say, giving in the United States, where everybody talks about how much Americans mm. are based on tax figures, but a lot that is tax deductible in the United States, in particular church giving, is not tax deductible in Australia. And so those numbers are really misleading. And in fact, Australians are, mm. Australians are very generous. So I figured if you were fundraising for an institution that you knew Australians believed in and you knew they were generous, then the problem was probably that they hadn't been asked or they hadn't been asked 
in a way that really invited them to participate in the intellectual life of the institution and to be partners in important projects. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I remember going to one hideous black tie dinner where, not for the university, but for a charitable organization where my wife and I, who have toddlers, had taken, you know, gotten a babysitter and slept out on old winter's night. And she looked at me over drinks and said, do you think if we write him a check and just put it in the little thing in the middle of the table, we really have to endure the dinner? And I said, no, let's go up and ourselves. We'll put the check in the table. And, and we go. So we, oh. so we did. And I think that's a reaction many people oh, yeah, have. Exactly. And that had been what fundraising in Australian universities had been. Well, of course, you're not going to raise much money. But if you say to people, you know, we've got someone here who is, you know, the world's only end-of-life plastics recycling technology that doesn't require sorting of the rubbish that's been invented at the University of Sydney recently, a kind of new treatment for wounds that means that there is no scarring of any kind has just been invented and commercialised at the University of Sydney. You know, and if you say to people, we're about to have this huge breakthrough in X or Y or Z, and we'd love to partner you with you in that because you're passionate about this and you can help us take this work to the next level, that's a whole lot better than rubber chicken. And people hadn't been making the ask in that way. And we just found that when we did, people responded. Yeah. So rather than finish it at the 600 million initial target, you expanded that target to raise the $1 billion. And you achieved that, what, in 10 years? Yes, we did, which was very extraordinary, very exciting. And the question is now, what's the next challenge? And what is it? So the traditional wisdom is that campaign targets double each time you have a campaign, but I'm afraid it, that, that's a bit of a, a dizzying <laughs> for my big eyes, so I'm not sure what we're going to do next. Yeah, exactly. Just a, a little bit more on this. I mean, was the idea that you intended to spend that money mainly on research to help lift the university's standing in the international league, but to also, you do say that you spend some of it on some new buildings and on scholarships? Yeah, and the scholarships thing was particularly important. One of the little known things about the Whitlam reforms was Whitlam made it free for all students to go to Australian universities. 75% of students were already having their fees paid by Commonwealth scholarships, and they were also getting a living allowance. And what he did was he took away the living allowance and made it possible for the other 25% to go to university for free. And that's left a bit of a hole in Australian higher education because lots of students can come to university because they can put their fees on the never never through the HEX system, and that's been a terrific innovation in Australia. But they actually are under enormous pressure to keep down many part-time jobs in order to keep body and soul together. And so scholarships to help students, not just students from disadvantaged backgrounds, but students from families whose you know, parents might have several young people at TAFE or at university at the same time and who may be financially stretched in one way or another, having scholarships to help those students come to university is incredibly important to us. And it's been humbling to see the way that donors have shared that vision. Yeah. Can you, I mean, this is, you know, you're expressing that you were enormously optimistic and you felt that Australians had been kind of miss, the point was missed that in fact they were very generous, but can you remember being nervous, perhaps even doubtful at the beginning that you might get to the 600 million even? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I, re <laughs> I remember there was that, so, so we have this sort of, depending upon how you count, 700 or so million dollar project in obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And at the time at which we were thinking about finding a home for this, I remember sitting in a finance committee of Senate and then saying, so what figure do we put down for philanthropic contributions in our planning for this project? And I just thought, beats me. People haven't done particularly done well in this space. And in fact, that project has been hugely well supported philanthropically 
but there were many moments at the beginning where I thought, I wonder if this is going to happen. But, you know, that's where the entrepreneurial thing is important because everybody who's trying something new has a moment where they think the whole thing is barking. Currently on the site at the university, the new Chow Chak Wing Museum is being built in a prime position. The Chinese businessman has donated $15 million for it. Look, there has been some increasing concern about foreign interference in Australia, China's soft influence, both at a political level, but also in the community and business. He wasn't by any means the largest donor to your inspired campaign, but what do you say to that sort of criticism and scepticism? So this is something about which I feel very strongly and in particular in which I feel very strongly about Dr. Chow and his generosity to the university. So Dr. Chow is, of course, an Australian citizen and Mm -hmm. though he has a business headquartered in Guangzhou. And the university approached him about funding for our museum. He has a museum of his own in Imperial Springs near Guangzhou, and we thought that this might be a project in which he was interested. We, you know, in various ways presented the project to him, and he has been very generous to us and the notion that there is in any way anything other than an Australian citizen being generous to an Australian institution is just offensive and on the Chinese influence thing you know my line is always well there are various sorts of regulation in relation to foreign influence we abide by all of that regulation, not only in relation to China, but in our dealings with other countries around the world and their research institutions and their educational institutions. If there's something that goes on that's inappropriate at the university, tell us about it and we'll address it. So far, what happens when you say that to people is they then go, oh, rhubarb, 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 oh, rhubarb, rhubarb, oh, well, it's terrible. And nobody can quite tell you what's terrible or give you the opportunity to deal with what they allegedly think is terrible. And there's just been a huge amount of fear-mongering in this space when the truth is that, for example, for us as an institution, when China is investing in remarkable technological development and really important research, and when we have you know, around 250 researchers who collaborate with Chinese institutions on, you know, really world-class Australia and the region benefiting technologies and research projects, it's really hard to see what's wrong with that. Let me give you a really good example. At the University of Sydney, we have a researcher who was the first to announce the sequence of the COVID-19 genome. He made all the work in relation to vaccinations possible because he had sequenced the genome of the virus. Three years before doing that, he and his collaborators in Wuhan had said, it's not implausible that there's going to be a pandemic that the world needs to get rid of, and it's likely to come out of this category of viruses because of what we see these viruses doing in animals and because of, because of the way that it looks worth thinking. And this is... Really, this research is really worth funding. Of course, the world ignored that to its peril, but nevertheless, this was groundbreaking research and groundbreaking research that he did, of course, in collaboration with his Chinese collaborators in Wuhan. This is a researcher who has never taken a penny of Chinese research funding, not that there would be a problem if he had, but one of the major Australian newspapers ran a shocking kind of campaign against saying, Australian researcher deep in bed with the Chinese. Well, if he hadn't been engaging with Chinese researchers, we wouldn't have the sequence to the COVID-19 virus. We wouldn't have the possibility of a vaccine. 
It's just crazy stuff at the moment. Mm. Michael Spencer, I'm aware of time and I just want to move on. You've strategically gone about improving the university's standing in world rankings. How did you actually do that? We've really had a relentless focus on quality. And I think the great thing about an institution like this is that people are ambitious and ambitious to be the best. And so it's been about facilitating quality. And there were things that were holding us back. And in particular, the fact that there'd been underinvestment in our physical resources for a very long time and and research facilities and teaching Mm. facilities had been holding us back. And so there were just a, a number of things that we did in making it possible for people to do their best work that meant that we were able to climb up in the rankings. Yeah. Just a bit on your own path. You're an alumnus of the University of Sydney. You've lectured in law at the university. You you worked for the Australian Copyright Council prior to then undertaking your doctoral studies at the University of Oxford. Now, as well as working at Oxford for 20 years, you also became an Anglican minister. Is that, am I right in that? And what took you on that part of the journey? Uh, so my faith has always been sort of who I am. It's just entirely the ground of my identity. And there was a point at which it seemed appropriate to expand the ways in which I was able to serve the community of faith by being ordained. And in England, there's very flexible training. And so you're able to be ordained while holding down a day job. And that seemed like the right thing to do. Wow. Now, were your family in academia? Were they in business? So my father was a high school teacher and my mother ran a fitness business. Wow. So in a way, the high school teacher could explain your interest in learning and lifelong learning right. and, and helping other people to learn. Just what did you learn at Oxford on the business side that you brought back to running UCID or is it completely different? No. So Oxford has a very peculiar governance structure where every member of the academic community is a member of what's called congregation, which has ultimate power in the university. And the equivalent of the board, the so-called council, holds its power on delegation from congregation. So if 20 members of the university decide that what it's doing is dumb, they can call a meeting of all members of the university and overthrow the decision of council. So it teaches you that when you're going to bring change to a complex institution full of clever people, your arguments had better be really good. So that rigorous thinking, what backed with evidence or at least data or good reasons. Exactly. Exactly. So you are credited with having modernised Sydney University, simplifying its degrees and faculties, lifting the academic world rankings. But there have been some difficulties. You know, we don't have time to go into all of them. But do you see there have been some fails? Yeah, of course. Everybody has their fails. So... There have been things that we've tried that haven't worked. There have been moments when we haven't made the case for change as powerfully or as clearly as we might have done. And that's a part of the process, isn't it? It's about learning from Mm. what you don't get right as well as from what you do. Yeah. Now, at the end of the year, you're stepping down to take up a new job at the University College London. Why? Uh, So I think that there is a... You have a use-by date in these jobs that, you know, there are times in which you've made your contribution and then you need to move on. And I think that I love Sydney. I thought I was still still doing a good job, but I'd been here for 12 years and it was important for the institution to have some fresh leadership. And so I'm going off to UCL, which is a top 10 ranked institution and a very Mm. exciting place to be becoming a part of. Yeah, and it's an extraordinary institution, obviously. Congratulations on that. But you also have a large family with several little ones. You mentioned some toddlers. So what, you're shipping, what, half the family to London to start your new job? That's a big decision. It is a big decision. So I have eight children and the older four are staying in Australia and and our teenager and the three toddlers are moving with us to England. So it is a very big decision and particularly a big decision in COVID days when you're not quite sure when you're going to be able to see one another again. 
Yeah. How does everyone feel about it? I think both excited for me and a little apprehensive, as we all are. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, I, I understand you have to go, but Michael Spence, I'm asking a few of my guests about this. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Uh, what am I obsessed about at the moment? Um, a problem, an issue, a film, uh, a book? I'm obsessed about making sure that this institution that has adapted over 170 years faces the current crisis in a way that demonstrates its resilience and that means that its work is not diminished but perhaps even enhanced. And that's a tall order, but at the moment uh, I'm thinking rather too much about that and not enough what we're going to do about the fact that we can't easily transport our household halfway around the world given given air freight restrictions. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I think the, the latter is probably going to weigh on your mind in it the is. next few months. But what's the biggest thing you've learned in your journey, your career journey? That leading a community of clever people, transparency about what you don't know as well as what you do know, and really strong data, clear arguments, and honesty about when you're making decisions on the basis of the best available data and the best available data may be roping is really important. And that as soon as you get intellectually lazy in these jobs, that's when you make big mistakes. Dr. Michael Spence, AC, Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Sydney, I do so thank you for joining me on Build It, They'll Come, and best of luck with the move to London. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter, at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.